0: Cairo Seattle.
1: I'm Rachel Bell and this is your last meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, rapper and filmmaker Boots Riley. Boots has been the vocalist and MC of the political hip-hop group The Coup since 1991, which I listened to like crazy in my 20s, so this was very exciting to have him on the show. He's also the vocalist for the supergroup Street Sweep Social Club, with Rage Against the Machine guitarist Tom Morello. And he just wrote and directed his very first feature film. It's called Sorry to Bother You. It's been making the rounds at all the film festivals, including the Seattle International Film Festival, and will hit theaters nationwide on July 6th. Now, choosing a last meal is hard for a lot of people because we all love so many foods and we have so many memories attached to foods. But for Boots and me, it was a matter of framing the question correctly. What would you want to eat for your
2: last meal? Oh, I thought the question was, what was my last oh,
1: meal? Oh, no, no, no. Like I was going to say the protein
2: Earth. plate on the on the plane. <laughs> that would not be great. <laughs> No,
1: I would hope you wouldn't have airplane food for your last meal. <laughs> I feel like this could be a spinoff podcast. Uh, what was the last thing you ate? <laughs> but I kind of like the idea of asking everybody this from now on to kind of juxtapose the last thing you ate versus what your last meal would be and see how different they are. It's a
3: solid icebreaker, and the few people you have asked have been a little embarrassed about the last thing, if I remember.
1: Everybody is embarrassed. Like, everybody eats weird stuff before they come here. I had
3: cookies on the way over. It's like, mmm.
1: Oh, yeah, like, I had, like, part of a Twix bar for breakfast. (laughs) Exactly. As far as what Boots Riley did choose for his last meal, spoiler alert, it says it, like, on iTunes. You already know this. He wants unagi, which is Japanese barbecued eel. So I chatted with Taichi Kitamura, chef owner of Sushi Kapo Tamura, one of Seattle's best sushi restaurants. And I chose Taichi even though he purposely does not serve unagi in his restaurant.
0: I eat unagi in Japan. I feel my body was unagi.
1: <laughs> unagi body. <laughs> <laughs> We will also dive into the elastic pantsed world of the all-you-can-eat buffet. We'll talk about the history of the buffet, buffet strategies, and how to construct the perfect plate without making any rookie mistakes. But first, my conversation with Boots Riley, who always keeps a hair pick in the back pocket of his pants. One thing that I read in a New York Times article actually was uh, what the name of your pick is called. So you have a beautiful afro and you use an angel
2: food cake cutter.
1: Yeah, an angel food cake cutter. What is that?
2: So when I was a kid, uh, we just called them cake cutters. And I thought that it was like a slang because I was like, oh, our hair is cake. And somebody made that slang up. Yeah. But these are actually were made for angel food cake to cut them. Yeah, these are like the ones that are actually from the 20s and 30s. Oh, really? So, yeah.
1: So, have you ever been able to help in a cake emergency when someone's like, we have to cut the cake and we don't have a knife?
2: Exactly. I'm like, say no more. Check it out. You know, yeah.
1: And that's specifically supposed to be for angel food cake. For
2: angel food cake. I used to have to get, you know, because often I carry these in my back pocket so the handle eventually breaks. And so, in an emergency after go get one and I used to have to go to William Sonoma to get to get another one but not enough people are in the angel food cake anymore so they stopped <laughs> yeah. carrying it
1: little did they know that you were buying it for your hair yeah yeah that's so funny I imagine you're very curious to know what an angel food cake cutter looks like. And it actually looks more like a comb than anything you would use to cut a cake. There is nothing knife-like about it. So it has either a wooden or a plastic handle. And then there's a thin metal rod attached to the handle and about a dozen long, thin metal tines that are each about four inches long. So it's like a Big metal comb. Uh, And I watched some videos on YouTube. The idea is that if you use a knife uh, to cut through angel food cake, it would smush it. And it's so delicate. Uh, So when you put this comb through it, you kind of wiggle it down through the cake and it gently tears the cake into pieces instead of crushing it. So like I mentioned before, Boots has a new film out. I asked him to give me the elevator pitch.
2: It's an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. It's called Sorry to Bother You.
1: So when I go to the movies, I don't often think about how a film got made, the struggle that it took to get the film made, the money that they had to raise. I just think these are a bunch of rich Hollywood people, and so of course they got a film made. Uh, But this was not easy for Boots. He wrote this screenplay. He thought that it could really be something, uh, but he didn't have film connections. He only had connections in the music industry. But he knew he needed money to make the film, and he wanted top-tier actors. Boots is a lifelong activist and community organizer, and he was born into a family of activists and community organizers, so it was really natural for him to tap into his guerrilla tactics. Boots started sneaking into private dinners where he had a friend of a friend who knew some actor to try to slip them the screenplay. He did everything that he could. He used every connection that he had, but nothing was clicking. There were really famous actors that said they wanted to be a part of the project, and then they changed their mind, and a lot of actors who said they weren't interested. But eventually the screenplay got into the hands of Dave Eggers, award-winning author and publisher of McSweeney's. He called it one of the best unproduced screenplays he'd ever read, and he published it as a book in 2014. Boots eventually scraped together the money and the cast, and he shot the film in his hometown of Oakland. And eventually the film's distribution rights were purchased by Annapurna for seven figures. Do
3: you know about uh, the Annapurna production company?
1: No, I just know that they make really great movies. They
3: make really great movies, and our internet is down currently, and I can't remember (laughs) the name of, uh, of the woman who runs it, but she's sort of a wealthy heiress. And she decided what she was going to do with her money was to put this production company together and finance really creative, really experimental projects that may not be made in the typical studio pipeline setting. And so they've they've been responsible for some of the best movies, I think, in the last like five, six years.
1: And this film really fits that mold. It is very experimental. I noticed that a few different uh, media outlets use the word bonkers to describe your film, which is such a great adjective, but I was Mm -hmm. wondering, why do you think that they use the word bonkers? Is this a a word that's in vogue right now, or is your film just particularly bonkers?
2: I don't know. I think it's maybe a better sounding word than insane. But yeah, I think when you're writing stuff, there are trends of words to use. I do think that this movie is very different in narrative structure, very different in content, very different in aesthetic. Um, we made a movie to keep people engaged with it, to make sure no one knew what's going to happen.
1: You were born into a family of community organizers and activists. You've been a communist basically your entire life. When you're oh, old enough to form an was, opinion,
2: yeah, since I was fourteen.
1: Okay, so how did that influence the film that is coming out now? The film that you wrote.
2: Uh. I think everything that I'm that I do in my art is influenced with an analysis of the world that has a class analysis. It doesn't matter what your politics are. You can't deny that our world has class contradictions that informs my opinion about the world. Even when I make a love song, it informs that.
1: So let's talk about politics in terms of eating and food. Um, Mm -hmm. How has politics shifted, if at all, the way that you eat?
2: Mm. I don't know. I'm not one of those people that are guilty about things that I eat or whatever. Yeah. You know, there are people that righteously have problems with the way the food industry works. But I think that that's really more of a problem, not with food, but with the system that we're in. Under capitalism, you have to overproduce, like, for something to work. So those are the problems that come with meat. And any of these things. So until you get rid of the system that we're in, you just deciding not to eat meat is not going to stop meat from being overproduced. In order for anyone to eat meat, they have to produce way more than is needed. And that's where all the, the problems come with it. So you actually deciding that you not eating meat or dairy or whatever is helping the world is actually part of the problem because you've decided that you did your part by not eating meat and not eating dairy. And really your part is you need to be part of changing the economic system.
1: How do you do that, Um, Professor Boots?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that the prerequisite is that for people to be organized and how they need to be organized is in their places of work. I think that our... Power is not uh, by the statements that we can make. It's not by uh, the spectacle that we can make by being out on the street. That's part of it. That's part of how we let each other know we exist. But our power comes from the fact that we create wealth when we work for other people. That is the pinpoint of the economic system that we're in, is that exploitation that we are getting exploited. So our whole way to make the system come to a halt is is withholding labor and that can happen in small movements around particular issues and uh, maybe it could grow to change bigger things.
1: We're going to take a quick break but when we come back the big reveal what does Boots Riley want for his last meal? Oh, him is a rhyme. <laughs> We're back with Boots Riley, who came straight from the airport to the radio station for our interview. What would you want to eat for your last meal?
2: Oh, I thought the question was, what was my last oh, meal?
1: Oh, no, no, no. Like I was going to say on the protein
2: Earth. plate on the, on the plane. <laughs> that would not be great.
1: <laughs> no, I would hope you wouldn't have airplane food for your last meal.
2: <laughs> Unless you're just trying to be ironic. Like,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. like Alanis Morris said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know
2: if she was really being ironic, but... My last meal would be the all-you-can-eat menu at whatever restaurant. That way, yes, it could take as long as I need.
1: Right. It's funny. Neil deGrasse Tyson said something kind of similar. And Mary Roach, who's an author who lives in the Bay Area as well, she said something similar. Uh, people I find who are more academic, <laughs> yeah. they all try to figure out how they can live longer. Yeah. And everyone else is like, I want ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: because most- I guess the thing is, is in those cases, we're refusing the premise. I'm always refusing the premise yeah. like, that I have to do this or I have to die or I have to, okay, yeah, we have to die. But when, I think is negotiable. I'm going to fight it. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but yeah, what it would be. I mean, there's nothing I like that much. You really? know what I'm saying? Like, there's things that I love, but not like, this is it. Yeah. You know, I had, okay, yeah, I had, I had this, uh, it was a fried avocado stuffed with egg salad with barbecue sauce on it. That's very and unusual. That, that was at Aburaya in Oakland. Yeah, it was delicious. It was re- unexpectedly delicious.
1: I've never heard of anything like that before. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, this has to be bad for me because it tastes so good. Yeah. <gasps> I think that I probably would not be able to enjoy whatever I'm eating.
1: Right. Well, let's say it's your birthday and you could have whatever (laughs) you want. There you go. What would you want for your birthday meal?
2: Um, Unagi. Just like a pile of unagi. Because I always, whenever they give it to you, they always give you too little.
1: You deserve more unagi. Yeah. So do you like it on rice?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Because what I've done is like, okay, just give me the unagi bowl. Give me two of them. With The second one is just the unagi, you know. So I like it. Dragon roll. I think that has unagi in it. Yeah, yeah.
1: So in theory, Boots Perfect Last Meal would be an all-you-can-eat buffet of unagi. Unagi is the Japanese preparation of freshwater eel. It's an easy beginner sushi for those who are squeamish of raw fish because it is always cooked and it is basted with a sweet soy sauce that's almost like a Japanese barbecue sauce. I invited the chef-owner of one of my very favorite Japanese restaurants in Seattle to come in studio and educate us on unagi.
0: My name is Taichi Kitamura. My restaurant is Sushi Tamura.
1: Taichi was recently a James Beard Foundation semifinalist for Best Northwest Chef, and he beat Bobby Flay on the Food Network show, Beat Bobby Flay. In case you're curious, the winning dish was a Korobuta pork pot sticker with sea urchin sauce. What is unagi? How do you prepare it?
0: Well, it's freshwater eel. eel consumed in America are already prepared. So it comes cooked, seasoned, vacuum-packed. So all we need to do is uh, slice it and heat it up a little bit and put it on sushi. No way. That's it.
1: Where is this coming from? China,
0: like everything else. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the eel
1: comes pre-packaged and seasoned from China. Yes. Whoa, I did not know that. Yes, I had no idea that every restaurant was just opening up a package and slicing it up. This changes everything.
0: Yeah. I mean I'll still eat it. Is this sushi kitchen confidential thing? I mean am I making a tribute to I think you Mr. might Bourdain be. Yeah.
1: And- You're gonna be our Japanese boarding today. <laughs> what shouldn't we eat at a Japanese restaurant during well, brunch?
0: I used to get my eel fresh and cook it in house because I thought the prepared ones are too sweet and for other reasons that I thought I wanted to cook my own. But one eel was costing me like $35. Yeah. As opposed to $10 a eel for the prepared one. So people are not going to pay $12 for a piece of unagi. So I stopped doing that.
1: What is the sauce that is on there?
0: Traditionally, it's soy sauce. It has some sake and mirin, which is sweet sake. And some restaurants do add sugar to that. But the secret to the deliciousness of the sauce is they keep using it. They keep dipping the eel in the sauce. They just keep adding additional seasoning to that.
1: So the sauce gets eely, like the eel kind of goes into the sauce. The
0: sauce gets very eely.
1: Okay, that sounds good.
0: And the eel restaurant in Japan uses this for decades, like half centuries. Are you serious? Like, There's they just there, keep you know, adding to it? They just keep adding to it. Yeah. There's something, you know, delicious about something that's been sitting there for years. There's an interesting episode about when uh, Tokyo was f- being firebombed, the eel, eel restaurant owner run with his sauce pot into the bombing uh, shelter. So it's like, yeah. in a fire, what are you going to yeah, save but he, but my eel pot? he left his family behind. Really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he has priorities. He has eel priorities. <laughs> When I lived in Japan, in Kanazawa, just down the street from where I worked, there was an all-eel restaurant. uh, And I love that. In Japan, you can go to an all-tempura restaurant, an all-eel restaurant, and it was all unagi-dan, just eel on rice. Even in Japanese (coughs) restaurants in Japan, is the eel coming from China?
0: A lot of it do come from China. But the restaurant that only serves eel, they, they get domestically farmed eel or wild eel. Well, from Japan, yeah, they don't they don't compromise on that.
1: So you own a Japanese restaurant, uh, but you don't serve unagi. No. Why is that?
0: Well, so uh, I no longer wanted to serve the eel that I already prepared in China, uh, because I I just can't trace it. I don't know what kind of environment that's that's that was farmed in, and I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's. They're not allowed in Japan, so they sell it to the United States.
1: Oh, so we're getting, like, the sloppy <laughs> seconds that nobody else wants.
0: Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if I wanted to say that, but that's what it seemed to me that was happening. So I decided not to serve that. And then I switched to farmed unagi from Japan, which is a pretty clean environment. And I was able to trace that. But for the price point, I just can't charge so much money for a piece of eel, you know. And a lot of people a lot of people are like it the Chinese will not get better,
1: <laughs> oh really? well, I guess if you're used to it, if that's all you've right. ever had, then right. even though yours is homemade and sustainable, exactly. it just doesn't taste the same.
0: well, you know, and they they add m s g and all that delicious chemical to it.
1: Yeah. That. It's really... it. Does. You can tell when you taste it, though. It tastes <laughs> yeah. like barbecue sauce. It's like right. processed. And yeah, I think that's why a lot of people do like it. It's right. super sweet and exactly. like sticky and savory. Yeah.
0: So it has all kinds of, you know, stuff that's uh, that makes it addictive. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I can't compete with something like that and charge... Two to three times as much as every other restaurant's charging in town. So,
1: And they don't like it as much anyway.
0: <laughs> right. So I came up with a different product, actually, which is uh, black cod belly.
1: Black cod belly. Yeah. yeah. You know,
0: We serve a lot of black cod in my restaurant, and there's always belly that's too fatty. But I always looked at him like, man, this look like he always has black skin, black inner skin. And it tastes like unagi, too, because it's so fatty and meaty. And But it's just too rich if you eat it straight. But then I prepared it like unagi. It was better than unagi. Oh. Without all those, those little bones that are in the eel. And I, I'm like, oh. And I started selling it uh, three years ago. And then all my regulars loved it. It's faux You know, I call it the J-nagi because it's kosher.
1: <laughs> <Jew nagi>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is eel not kosher? No, it's not. Why not?
0: Because it does not have scales.
1: Oh, see, I'm the Jew in the room and you know more than I do. You I didn't did not know about know that? the scales. No. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. So, is that something that you advertise on the menu that it's kosher?
0: No, I don't. But uh-huh. I just call it the black cod belly and it's local sustainable alternative to unagi. Nice. Yeah.
1: So can you talk about the preparation then for it? What is the sauce and how do you prepare the lat cod?
0: Well, I do marinate that in a lot of sake, soy sauce, uh, mirin, sweet sugar, uh, and miso, typically two days. Wow. And then I grill it and then I slice it and then we steam it soon before we serve it. It's, it's served hot and very tender, melts in the mouth. Uh, over rice? Over, over rice, on a small rice bowl as a nigiri sushi.
1: My mouth is watering right now. It sounds oh, so good. It's
0: delicious. Sweet and savory and, uh, you know, rich.
1: So does that mean you don't eat unagi anywhere else?
0: I eat unagi in Japan, the type of restaurant you described. I yeah. mean, I, I know that maybe it's not sustainable, but I know it's coming from clean water and prepare prepared in a very uh, healthy way. So as a matter of fact, it's always on top of my list of restaurants that I want to go when I go visit my family in Japan. So
1: you're like me, I don't eat burritos up here because I'm from California and I don't Mm. think they're as good in Washington, so I fast, and then when I go to California, I just like fill my body with burritos. So Mm. you go to Japan and that's
0: your unagi zone. I fill my body with unagi. (laughs) Unagi body.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you know anything about the history of unagi? Is this something that is one of the original sushi or is it something that came later?
0: This came later, but unagi sushi is more popular in America. Uh, if you go to a high-end sushi restaurant in Tokyo or anywhere in Japan, you will never see unagi on the menu.
1: Is there some kind of festival or a certain time of year when people eat unagi in Japan?
0: Yes, it's it's called Doyon no Ushi. Uh, I, I heard that's the very original marketing campaign for food, 17th century or something like that. Some some guy had way too much unagi in him. Ask uh, this famous inventor in the history of Japan, hey, I want to sell this unagi. You know, can you come up with some kind of, can you help me sell it? And he said, okay, we're going to decide a day to eat unagi uh, in the middle of summer and call it uh, doyo no ushi. And he started doing it, and it's still going every summer.
1: So that was like the first advertising campaign, basically? Yes. What yes. does that translate to?
0: <sighs> I don't know. It's so like old, old language. Nobody knows the original meaning of it.
1: So what happens? How do you celebrate this holiday?
0: You go to a store and buy a unagi and put it on rice and eat it for dinner.
1: Oh, you know what it translates to? I just read on this website, asahiimports.com. It translates to day of the ox of the seasonal change period. Okay, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) So it makes sense that on the day of the ox, you eat eel. It makes total sense. The festival is called Doyo no Ushi, and this year it goes from July 20th through August 6th. And the idea of eating it in the middle of the summer is that you have this really nourishing, protein-heavy food that's supposed to give you energy when you're really tired from the heat. I read that 30% of the eel consumed in Japan is eaten during this festival. And I have to add, I hate to end this segment on a negative Nancy note, but we can't talk about Japanese eel without saying that it has been overfished and it is an official endangered species. But enjoy your all-you-can-eat buffet. (laughs) 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 But turn those frowns upside down, because we're going to talk about one of America's favorite pastimes, eating large amounts of food for very little money. So put on your stretchy pants, because we're going to Vegas for the all-you-can-eat buffets. Vegas! Is that how you're supposed to say it? I wanted to say it so you could hear the lights. (laughs) The last time I went to Vegas was... uh Sitting in my friend's living room in Seattle watching Showgirls for the sixth time. <laughs> what? Such a good movie. Six times? I just, it's funny. I mean, you got to watch it every couple of years. Some go to Vegas for the gambling and the clubs and some go exclusively to eat. Vegas is a celebrity chef smorgasbord. Everyone from Jose Andres to Giada De Laurentiis to Tom Colicchio and the frosted tipped Guy Fieri have restaurants there. But the original buffet is not American. According to the internet, Sweden invented the smorgasbord, which is the original buffet, but it was far less indulgent than the American buffets that we're used to today. Smorgasbord literally translates to buttered breadboard, and it was an easy way to feed unexpected house guests. In 1939, the Swedes brought their smorgasbord to America via the New York World's Fair. And I think we forget how influential the World's Fair used to be. This is where new inventions were revealed and we're going to space. This is the future and new cuisine from around the world.
3: I remember from the peanut butter and jelly episode with Dan Savage, like peanut butter came out at the World's Fair.
1: Yeah, they were giving samples for, I think, two cents or five cents in little cups. Yeah, But the first all-you-can-eat, wrapping around a room, steam tables, shrimp, and everything you could ever imagine buffet was purely American. According to many websites with zero sources, a guy named Herb McDonald worked as a publicist at the El Rancho Vegas, one of the first hotels on the Strip. Legend has it that back in the 1940s, he laid out a late night spread of cheese, cold cuts and bread for hungry customers who happily scarfed it all up. This little buffet was so successful that he created a 24 hour all you can eat, quote, buckaroo buffet. And it only cost a dollar. Now, even in the 1940s, a dollar was really cheap for an all-you-can-eat buffet. And the hotel lost money on it. But they made their money back by having people come to the hotel to gamble and stay. They had repeat customers and people who were curious about this new Buckaroo buffet. Pretty soon, all the hotels on the Strip heard about the success. They created their own. It spread across the country. And then we see the Sizzlers Buffet and Hometown Buffet and Chinese Buffets. Do you have a favorite buffet? Uh, let's see. In ha hoo, ha, hee, ha In college, uh-huh. we used to go to the Chinese buffets when we were really hungover, and I feel very proud of the fact that one time we stayed so long that we went from lunch to dinner on the same oh, tab. No, we just lounged and we were delirious and laughing, and we just like slowly ate our way from one meal to the next.
3: There was a Chinese buffet uh, near my college that took our college meal plan card. Forget it.
1: That's crazy.
3: Freshman 15 and 15 more and maybe a third. I was just going to
1: say like the freshman 40 at the all you can eat buffet. Yes. I don't really buffet very much anymore.
3: I don't either, but I do love an Indian buffet.
1: Oh, yeah. Lunchtime. Big fan. Yeah, that's good. Uh, So in my research, I found I've only I've only been to Vegas once when I had my 21st birthday. I had a great time, decided I never needed to go back. So I just go to Vegas via the Internet now. uh, And I was researching what the biggest buffet was. And that seems to be the Bacchanal Buffet, if that's how you pronounce it. at Caesar's Palace. 500 items. 600 seats, they have everything from crab legs to dim sum, Australian lamb, shrimp and grits, red velvet pancakes, tacos, mashed potatoes, watermelon juice, which people seem to talk about a lot online, uh, and about 490 other items. Oh, my God. There's also something Caesars created that I think is amazing called the Buffet of Buffets Pass. So if you buy this pass, you get access to five buffets in Las Vegas for 24 hours. So you're just supposed to 24-hour- eat it up at five different buffets
3: okay this might get me back to vegas i'm not even kidding
1: it's not even that much money it looks like it starts at 49.99 which for 24 hours of eating you're like doing fist pumping right now i'm so excited about this (laughs) but like if you're gonna eat at five buffets in 24 hours you need to strategize yes because okay there's a buffet here in seattle that's expensive it's like a hundred bucks for brunch they have a lot i know i know and i took my mom there this is like the only time i've been i took my mom for mother's day which is like the classic thing that they host there and they put all the good stuff in the back the way way back that's where the crab legs are the jumbo Uh. shrimp all of the seafood up front it's the cheap stuff it's like muffins and rolls and i'm watching all these people and i'm like (sighs) You guys are dumb. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. (laughs) Like my mom and I like pushed our way back. We had to walk like 17 miles to get to the crab legs and the raw oysters. That is where you start. And then maybe you have a muffin.
3: Yeah. You don't load up on carbs first, guys. This is dining 101.
1: I know. You could get a piece of bread anywhere. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. So like what are your strategies
3: Well, it's all about prepping the stomach for me. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure this is this comes from the college days when we would want to make use, you know, maybe eat one meal that day. Yes. So night before you have a decent dinner, you get your stomach nice and stretched out, maybe drink a lot of water. Oh, yeah. Then you wake up in the morning. No breakfast. You got to go in ravenous. And then now that you're all stretched out and empty. You just keep piling on those plates. Just fill it up. You just fill it up, and you always go for the expensive stuff first. Rachel, yep. it's a solid theory. I mm-hmm. agree with you hundred percent. You give me those steaks. I want the if there's a carving station, carving station. Car, whatever it is, carve me off a piece. <laughs> That's what I want.
1: I love to see, like, something carved in the shape of a swan, whether it's ice or a watermelon. Something should be carved into the shape of a swan. Um, another strategy of mine is always walk around and see everything they have first before you start eating. Because then if you're full and then you discover bacon-wrapped scallops and you you have no more room, like, what's the point?
3: That's right. Like a good jewel thief. You got to case the joint. You got to
1: case the joint. Yes. I enjoy a nice factoid. And I read that uh, 60,000 pounds of shrimp are consumed every day in Vegas via the buffets. Day? Yeah, a day. And then I read, this is since shut down, but uh, very recently, a few months ago, it shut down. There's a ranch just outside of Vegas that's been operating for, I think, the last 50 years. And these pigs that lived at the ranch were the best fed pigs in the country because the casinos started giving all of their leftover food to this ranch. Because otherwise they were just throwing it away. And it was so wasteful. And so these, these hogs were going hog wild. On a leftover crab cakes. Living in hog heaven. Living in hog heaven. But uh, yeah, that shut down a few months ago. So I'm thinking that maybe they should just wrap up the food and send it to our radio station and we can be the new hogs.
3: Also, I don't know if you know this factoid, but that's where the phrase a pig in crab cakes comes from.
1: Before we wrap up, let's get some final words from Boots Riley. And so you've lived in Oakland since you were six and it's become gentrified. How has the city's food scene changed? Uh, and what do you think about um, that?
2: That's one of the good things about it, I guess. Is that I mean, it's it's good and it's sad. Like because when it wasn't gentrified, there definitely was this sense among me and a lot of my friends that wow, we wish we had access to cool stuff. What you do get is fine bourbon and great restaurants. And actually, what really kicked it off was the Occupy movement. Occupy had brought the world's media to Oakland, and all those media needed places to eat, so they ate at a couple great restaurants. And, and I know because I know the husband of the woman that wrote this thing in the New York Times calling Oakland one of the top five places for eating. And so then, of course, then all the restaurants that were going to open up in san francisco we're like open in oakland yeah 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 Yeah. so so but anyway yeah there's a lot of great chefs doing interesting things i just mentioned aburia which is japanese fried chicken right around the corner from that is a place that senegalese food while bisap baobab uh there is man you know I, i i get worried because i'm gonna leave people out and they all give me free food since i am <laughs> known around there. And that's yeah. really what's cool about it. And if I don't say names... And, You're going to get cut off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that was Boots Riley's Last Meal. His new film is called Sorry to Bother You, starring Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Army Hammer, and the voice of David Cross. It's in theaters across the country on July 6th, and it already has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Thanks to Taichi Kitamura, chef-owner of Sushi Kapo Tamura, one of the top sushi restaurants in Seattle. They also do an amazing Japanese brunch, serving all kinds of foods that I've only eaten in Japan that I've never been able to find in the U.S. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, as always, theme music by Prom Queen. And we are now on Instagram. If you are nosy, you will love my Instagram because there are pictures of my boyfriend on it and me and pictures of food and mountains. Aaron Mason's also on Instagram. You can see what his face looks like in his girlfriend's face. Oh yeah. I should mention it's your last meal podcast on Instagram. Tell a friend about the podcast. Give us a rating on iTunes. I'm Rachel bell. And until next time, this is your last meal. I feel like I'm going to burp or something's going to come out. What's happening. It's like the tiniest burp in the world. I'm so stressed. <laughs> okay. Felt good. Yeah. <laughs> this is where all of the new inventions and the new fur... I love furd. I love urt and fur. You like and firs? I love urton and furds. Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs>